This is the Discovery Seminar, session number two, Our Doctrines, the Core Beliefs of Our Church. Okay, yes, this is uh, session two, Our Doctrine, the Core Beliefs of Our Church. Uh, our hope is to, to really let you guys know who we are and what we're all about. Um, and of course, there's uh, distinctives about, about any church. Um, we, can, um, we can all share in, uh, in our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet have some distinctives that don't put us outside of evangelicalism. We're all uh, together in this. Um, but there'll be, there might be theological emphases, ministry priorities of particular churches um, that you should know uh, in order to get to know who they really are and what they're all about. Um, so this lesson looks at those theological priorities and, uh, and perspectives, um, and we hope to do so in a sense that um, there's, there's no superiority in us and about us. Uh, listen, we're the pastors here, uh, I, others are fully aware of uh, well, maybe not as fully aware as we could be, but we're aware that we're, uh, we have fault, uh, we have weaknesses, um, but we also have these theological distinctions that we, that we uh, discern are from the Lord, from the scriptures. Uh, and so we're, we're fairly passionate about those. We, we feel like they're true and they're good um, without uh, wanting to say that we're superior in any way to any other churches that might not hold these exact, um, these exact theological ideas. Um, so, in the broadest sense of the word, we, along with uh, many Christian churches, not all, uh, are evangelical, which means uh, two things. I'm in the third paragraph of your first page there. Uh, first, that we believe that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant word, and is therefore the final authority of, for all matters of life and doctrine. And second, we believe that people are separated from God and they need to be saved by responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that would be just, you know, basically what evangelicals should be about, although that word is a little loaded and people think all sorts of things when they think of evangelicals. Um, but uh, that's us. And now we come also, though, with these uh, theological distinctives, and this is what we're going to go over in this talk. Um, and I'll just list them for you. First, that we're, we're gospel-centered. Uh, secondly, that we're reformed in soteriology, that we're reformed in our ideas of how one gets saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so I'll explain that more later. Uh, we're Baptistic, which just speaks to us uh, baptizing people. Um, we're continuationists. And these are all like code words, <laughs> theological words to explain something that's true. Uh, continuationists, that uh, refers to uh, the continuing miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, the work that we see in the New Testament um, uh, is, is we see as ongoing today. So it talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in us. And then lastly, that we're complementarian, which is uh, talking about men and women and, their, and the biblical roles of men and women. So let's dive right in. Uh, first, we are gospel-centered. The gospel is absolutely at the center of the Christian faith. Um, unlike other religions, Christianity at its core is not about morality, philosophy, or self-fulfillment. Rather, it's about good news, the greatest news that the world has ever heard. And the gospel, many of you know, uh, that word gospel literally means good news. Paul calls this um, the news that is of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, through 4, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is just a very succinct uh, Pauline message of the gospel, or a statement of the gospel. Uh, and he's saying, beyond this gospel, there is absolutely nothing that is more important for us in life. Uh, it is a matter of first importance. Uh, the gospel announces that, that God has done in Christ everything needed to save us. It is the good news of Christ's incarnation, life, death, resurrection, 
and ascension. The gospel is therefore objective. It is a matter of history. It is what Christ did for us, no matter how we feel, the ground of our salvation never changes. It is objective. So we can feel all sorts of things, and we can even doubt at different times that this is true, but it doesn't stop the fact that it is true, that what Christ did for us um, has happened. It's the anchor, so to speak. It's the, it's the rock upon which we stand. And uh, we want you to, to understand that uh, the gospel is really uh, the message of all of Scripture. We can sometimes mistakenly fall into the uh, understanding that only the New Testament explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly that's where uh, it is, we find its fulfillment. But the entire uh, Bible uh, speaks to the gospel. The Bible is not a mixed bag of books and ideas loosely related to each other. The Bible tells a story, even though it's written by many authors over uh, many uh, years and, and, and eras. Uh, it's the story of God and his relationship to his creation in general and to humanity in particular. And at the center of this story stands Jesus Christ and his saving work on our behalf. Um, and we can see this, that the, that the story, uh, the whole story of Scripture really is the gospel um, because uh, we're told as much. Uh, Jesus in, in John 5, 39 says, uh, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, those Scriptures, that bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying that the Old Testament, all of it, is bearing witness about him. So it's all telling of him, of the salvation, the redemption that God plans for mankind um, through Jesus Christ. That's the, from creation all the way through Israel's history to the coming of Christ. It was all a plan and it was all being laid out by God for us uh, in, the, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, the Bible unfolds the story of redemption. It illuminates uh, for us the nature of God, his sovereignty, his holiness, his loving nature, and the nature of mankind as well, that we're isolated from God, corrupted by sin, and subject to his righteous wrath. It also, it also reveals the grace of God, uh, the, his acting to restore all things back to himself through his son and how we can find forgiveness and be restored to a right relationship with God through repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this, this is the message that we are preaching at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, the gospel is the exclusive message for salvation for sinners, and we preach it unashamedly. Every person stands guilty before God, separated from God because of sin. We know this because Paul tells us this in Romans 3, um, 3, 1 through 12, and then uh, a little bit of verse 23. As it is written, he says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's, that's very brutal. Paul's not pulling any punches when he tells us this, but this is the situation for every single person who's ever lived and who's ever living now. Um, Christ came to be our substitute. That's the good news. Perfectly obeying God's law in this life, uh, satisfying God's justice through his willing and sacrificial death on the cross. Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And Romans 3 um, this beautiful statement of the gospel uh, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is a, a bit more elaborate statement of the gospel by Paul, uh, but a beautiful one and very succinct nonetheless. Um, propitiation, that's not a word that we typically use in English. Um, this means to, to satisfy the wrath of God, uh, the satisfied to satisfy uh, the just wrath of God against sinners. Uh, Jesus' death satisfied God in this way and satisfied him in his justice. 
Um, the, the, the only way that we could be uh, made right before God is for someone to pay the penalty. Uh, we pay the penalty, and this turns out not so good for us. Um, this separates us from God forever. Uh, Jesus Christ pays the penalty, and that means we, we can be justified through him. It's a wonderful statement there that, that Paul makes, so that God might be just, punishing sin, and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, uh, forgiving the one uh, who puts his faith in Jesus Christ merely because Christ did that work for us and not a uh, work that we couldn't do for ourselves. There's a great um, quote in here from John Stott that says, uh, when, how then could God express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon? Only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. Uh, that, that is a wonderful uh, exchange there. That's, that's a transaction that we should all rejoice in. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, um, For our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that uh, in him we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. Um, we traded our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Uh, that, was, that was what we got. Jesus took our sinfulness and paid the price for it. We got in its place his righteousness. This is wonderful good news. And should, this is news that we, we want to preach, that we want to speak to you over and over again and bring you to the point of rejoicing regularly over this great work that's been done on your behalf. It is only through trusting in Christ and his work and turning from our sins that we can be saved. So we need to have faith in Christ. We need to repent from our sins and turn to God uh, instead. The gospel is also the governing reality for the life of believers. God, the gospel governs all of the Christian life. Um, we, we can also fall into this error, Christians can, uh, to think that the gospel was only the doorway into the Christian life, and that was its, its total usefulness. Uh, and therefore, ignore it as we seek to grow in the Christian life. Uh, that is not the way the, the scriptures tell us the gospel, uh, and it's not the way we uh, teach the gospel here as well. Our need for the gospel doesn't end once we are saved. The gospel remains the basis for our acceptance before God, as it says in Ephesians 2. The gospel reminds us that God is at work in us to change us, as we hear Paul say in Philippians 2. The gospel assures us that God will complete his work in us, as we are told uh, in Philippians 1. Uh, in fact, we, we think this gospel is so important that there, there are several authors that have uh, the same idea in their writings. Uh, one is Jerry Bridges, um, who, who recently passed away, or passed away in the past year or so, maybe two years, now I can't remember. Um, he, he gives us this idea of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Uh, and it wasn't just him, it was others before him and others since him that tell us this as well. Um, this gospel is of such importance that we should be reminding ourselves about it all the time. Uh, so one of my habits, uh, although I, I, I might do it less than daily, I suppose, is in prayer to go back through the gospel. Um, I often open my prayer that way and uh, remind myself the gospel, thank God for uh, the various aspects of what he's done for me through Christ Jesus, and, and rejoice in it. I just rejoice in this good work that he has done. At Sovereign Grace Church, our goal is to keep the gospel at the heart of all that we do. It, is, it will be the substance of our proclamation, the source of our motivation, and the fuel for our adoration. We will do all we can to ensure that our zeal for the gospel is never eclipsed by any other doctrine, teaching, or practice. Our commitment to you is that with all our might, we will endeavor to keep the gospel the main thing. That's what it's all about. Uh, that's why we are here. So that is our gospel-centeredness. You've probably already heard it in the preaching that you've heard at the church. Um, I, I think as we draw your attention to it, you'll probably hear it more and more. Um, we love the gospel of Christ Jesus, and we talk about it a lot. And in fact, we don't just talk about it in our preaching, but when you're in small groups, uh, when you're with, uh, with people in the church, um, you know, the gospel is often what we need to hear. 
you know, we're facing life's difficulties, and I'm wondering why I'm, I'm struggling as, as I do against sin, and I need my Christian brothers and sisters to remind me what God has done for me. This is why I'm going to continue to battle sin and seek to kill it. Um, this is why we can have faith that God is going to work all things for our good, for his glory, um, because that's what the gospel is about. It's about glorifying God, making much of him. So, in any case, we speak the gospel to each other as well. Um, secondly, we, uh, we are reformed uh, in our soteriology. That's that, that um, theological word that just means how we understand salvation uh, in Christ. While all genuine Christians believe that a person can be saved through the gospel, sincere believers differ on their understanding of God's part and man's part in that saving act. And at Sovereign Grace Church Pasadena, we understand salvation from an historic uh, reformed perspective, which places the emphasis on the activity of God and the glory of God in saving sinners. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to that because this is very important. Um, we, this, this particular theological perspective makes much of God. It makes much of what God has done. It makes much of, um, of his glory in the act of saving us. Um, and it, it's really to say that God saved us more to glorify himself than even for our benefit. This is about God. Um, what, makes our response, what makes our response to God possible? So now we're going to explain to you our, our, how we understand the scripture um, telling us about our salvation. The gospel is good news because sin and judgment are such bad news. In fact, you'll find that as you try to explain the gospel to someone, the difficulty isn't in telling them the good news that Christ died for our sins. The difficulty is in telling them that they're sinful and uh, facing God's wrath, his just wrath. That's the hard part to tell them uh, because it's bad news and most people don't, don't, either don't think about it or don't want to think about it that they're in a bad spot. Uh, sin is not only what we do, but it is who we are. Apart from God, we are, by nature, sinners. So if um, Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespass and sin in which we once walked. And so if we're, if we're dead in our sin, it means that we're, we're powerless to change this in any way. It's not a situation that we can make by our own power better. We can't make ourselves right with God. Uh, we can't make ourselves righteous like he requires uh, for us to have fellowship with him. So if that's the case, how is it possible that we're going to respond to the gospel uh, message at all? Um, it's here that the gracious nature of salvation becomes even more amazing. God acts so that we can act. God must act in us to make our response to the gospel possible at all. Um, so, uh, we're going to go through a, a few uh, points about uh, how God saves us. Uh, it's a, a progressive work. Uh, let's look at it this way. Um, chosen in eternity past. God's actions begin in eternity past when he chose us and determined that he would save us. This is what uh, theologians often call election, the uh, doctrine of election. This isn't that God just knew who we were or that God knew we would come to faith in Christ. This is that God chose us to come to faith in Christ, that God chose us for salvation. We hear it in, a, in Paul's statement in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So that's how God did this. Before creating the world, he chose us in himself. Um, now, uh, we, can, we can also then move on. We're, we're we're not even physically present when God has done this, but we become physically present in this world at some point, and there's an effective calling by God upon our lives. Uh, God's choosing us for salvation eventually results in his calling us and drawing us to himself. So it isn't that he just made this choice, it's that then he carries it out. Uh, God's drawing us to himself is often called his effective calling. 
God's work of inviting and drawing sinners to himself by the Spirit of God through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, So while God is the one who draws, this does not mean that a person is somehow saved apart from their own uh, willing response to the gospel. Through the grace of God, the divine summons, that divine call of God makes possible uh, our response to him. Um, Romans 8.30 says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So there's this chain of grace. He's going to bring it about. If he predestines you, he's going to call you. If he calls you, he's going to justify you through faith in Christ. If he justifies you through faith in Christ, he is ultimately going to bring you righteous before him to dwell with him for eternity. Uh, And in John 6, 44, we hear the Savior say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you see that this is, this is God's work in us, um, and this is important to understand. Uh, but we do want you to understand, too, that those who are saved make a real decision. Um, they, but they can only make that real decision after being acted upon by, by God. So that, that's, where, that's what we want you to understand here. Um, now, there's also the regenerating work of God by the Spirit in us. Um, we see in the scriptures this is called being born again. We'll read that scripture in just a second. When God calls us, he then changes our hearts so that we can freely respond to the gospel. That's, that's regeneration. That's making us alive again. Uh, in regeneration, God acts to change our inner nature and impart spiritual life to us. And as a result, we become spiritually alive and we are then able to believe the gospel and repent of our sins. Colossians 2, uh, 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. While, while you were dead in your sins, there was nothing about you that was going to be able to get out of that prison of sinfulness and unrighteousness and separation from God. It was the only way for you to get out of that prison is for God to act upon you by making you alive again. Uh, the spiritually dead cannot respond to God. God has to act upon the spiritually dead to make them spiritually alive in order to, in order to, um, to respond to God. Um, let's see if this illustration is helpful to you. When I was a, a kid, I was in Cub Scouts, um, the, the little kid's version of Boy Scouts. And uh, every year we had something called the Pinewood Derby. So we got these little blocks of wood and we would, we would carve them into something that looked like a car and attach the axles and the wheels. And uh, now it's just a little rolling machine. And uh, you'd bring it to the, to the den meeting or the troop meeting or whatever that was at that point. And uh, they had this special track, the Pinewood Derby track, with like um, maybe six or eight slots on it for the cars to each individually roll down. And it was, it was inclined at the beginning and then flattened out. And uh, whoever, you know, they, they would put all the cars on it, have this starting block, this thing that blocked the cars and held them up there. And, uh, and then they'd release that and bang, they'd go whizzing down the track and whoever's car was fastest won. Um, the fact of the matter is those cars were being held up there at the, at the beginning of the race. Um, and they weren't going to move. And this is kind of like us in, our, in being dead in our sin and trespass. The, the cars just couldn't move. They couldn't do anything of themselves to cause themselves to move. They're just stuck there. And regeneration is as though that, that starting gate is dropped so that gravity can just allow those cars to do and what gravity would cause them to do naturally, which is flow down the track. We're, we're made by God before sin has corrupted us to, to relate to God. And so uh, he has to remove that blockage of sin. He has to remove that blockage of shame and guilt. Uh, he has to forgive us of our sins. Uh, but first he has to make us alive to see that there is, an, that there is something good for us ahead uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that dropping of the gate is that regenerating, making us alive. And then we will move forward toward him. But it takes his act in order to get it done. So uh, a couple of wonderful quotes here. Uh, First one from Mark Dever. Scripture is clear in teaching that we are not all journeying toward God, some having found him, others still seeking. Instead, Scripture presents us as needing to have our hearts replaced, our minds transformed, our spirits given life. We can do none of this for ourselves. The change each human needs, regardless of how we may outwardly appear, is so radical, 
so near our roots that only God can bring it about. We need God to convert us. And then there's a a great uh, quote here from Charles Spurgeon. I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chooses me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Uh, You can hear a bit of humor in Spurgeon as he says this, uh, but I think we all know ourselves well enough to know that, uh, you know, it wasn't because I was such a great guy that that um, that God chose me for salvation. Uh, I can find no reason within me that God would do that. Uh, this is purely grace, undeserved favor uh, from him. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important? Uh, we hold to this uh, reformed view of salvation because we believe it represents the clear teaching of scripture. However, these doctrines have important practical effects on our lives as well. I mean, we should believe them because this is what God tells us, but we, we, it's right for us also to see the benefit in believing uh, what God tells us here. Um, the, these, this reformed understanding of Scripture uh, in regards to salvation uh, uh, brings the glory of God uh, about by uh, eliminating all human boasting in salvation. So it makes much of God and makes little of what we can contribute here. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, God, uh, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, of something you've done, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it eliminates boasting. So we cannot say, I'm a Christian, I believe that the the scriptures about uh, Christ dying on the cross for my sins because I was smart enough, I was spiritual enough, I was in tune with God enough in order to believe this. That's not the case. It's because God did this work in us. Faith is a gift from God. Uh, This reformed understanding of salvation also causes us to marvel at our salvation, and it produces in us an adoring, God-centered worship. So it makes much of God in our worship as well. Ephesians 1, uh, we've read this already, but uh, it bears repeating. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory and grace. So Paul is emphatic here that this work that God has done is for God's, God's glory. And then um, we can move on and we see a third benefit of this uh, understanding of how we're saved. Uh, it makes us secure in the unchanging purposes of God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, the purpose of God in saving us and, and the package of salvation includes him conforming us to the likeness of his son, his making our character to be like the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's, he's not spared his own son, so he's going to graciously give us these things as well, this holiness that uh, we seek, this holiness that even that we, we need to be in his life. Uh, we are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this made the biggest impact on me. When I, when I came to this church, I'd been a Christian for a number of years, but I didn't have this understanding of how I was saved. Uh, my understanding had me at the center of it uh, quite a bit more than, 
than this, uh, I think, more biblical understanding of how we get saved. Um, and so I thought I was smart enough. I thought I was spiritually in tune with God, and that's why I understood the gospel while other people didn't. Um, um, but that put me in a rough spot for dealing with my sin, because then I found that I kept sinning, and now what's that mean? Am I saved? Am I not saved? And it was, a, it was, a, it was really difficult. And, it, and, and the overall tendency was for me to just not focus on my sin very much and not deal with it in a very uh, good manner at all. Um, when I came here, I found this wonderfully safe place to deal with the sin that remained in my life because I understood God chose me from before the foundation of the world. Uh, anybody he chose from then is going to be justified, is going to be sanctified, is going to experience glorification in Christ Jesus, and God's not going to lose any of us in this process. Therefore, I have opportunity now to work on my sin with the grace of God and the power of the Spirit at work in me. And then uh, a fourth benefit we see from uh, this understanding of how we're saved is that it actually fuels evangelism. It gives us confidence that God will indeed save his people while removing from us the pressure to argue people into the kingdom of God. Um, and, and this was also very important for me to see because when I started hearing about um, about this understanding that God works in us to save us and not us and ourselves, um, I thought uh, predestination, election, that sounds like the surest way to kill evangelism. Uh, I mean, why should, why should we tell anybody about Christ if we know God's going to bring this about? Uh, he has to bring it about. He did it, right? Um, and, uh, and so I was afraid of what it would do. Uh, what I found instead was, well, A, uh, you could... You could understand uh, God in his electing love and his predestining us for salvation through faith in Christ and choose not to evangelize. In choosing to do so, though, you're choosing to disobey God's clear commands of Scripture. Um, so that's not a great place for you to be, period. Um, so you should, just like uh, we see the benefits of understanding what God's done here. We could believe it only because God says it, and that would be good enough. That's a good enough reason to believe it. Um, so we should be uh, telling others about the gospel of Christ Jesus because that's what he tells us to do. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's why he gave us the Great Commission uh, to, to go and, and make disciples of all nations. But also when you understand it this way, you realize God's at work. I'm not at work. And that is rather freeing. Um, in my uh, earlier Christian life, without this understanding, uh, I, would, I, I worked with youth and I, I often ha had occasion to preach evangelistically to, uh, to uh, groups of young people. And I did feel that pressure to use the right words, to evoke the right emotion, uh, to, to, to be the Holy Spirit, to draw them to Christ. But I'm not the Holy Spirit, and it's not my job to draw them to Christ. Now, of course, it is my job to present the gospel as clearly and as, as, as uh, passionately as I'm able to do, but God's going to do this work. And so then even if I'm not excellent at this, we can trust that we, we just, our job is just to tell people about Christ and trust that God's going to um, bring those whom he's predestined into faith in Christ and into this wonderful life that uh, he's given to each of us. So, that is how God saves us. Third, we are Baptistic. Uh, this is one of our distinctions as well. Uh, this is a much shorter part you can tell from your uh, notes here. Uh, Jesus commanded his followers to observe uh, two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about baptism in particular here. Um, now, some churches differ uh, on the meaning of baptism and the nature of baptism. And that's what we want to explain to you here. At Sovereign Grace Church, we believe uh, in believer's baptism. In other words, we believe that baptism is only appropriate for those who uh, give a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, now, uh, we, we just went over the Reformed understanding that we have of, uh, of how we're saved. Uh, we would call ourselves a... a um, uh, an essentially Reformed church. Um, reformed, when I say that word, I'm referring to 
um, to a historic movement in the church and to churches today that will call themselves uh, or include themselves under the banner of Reformed. Uh, we are only essentially Reformed because we are Reformed in the way we understand how God saves us. We're Reformed in our understanding of uh, God's sovereignty, of his ability to bring about everything that he wills and desires. Um, but classically Reformed churches don't agree with our, our view of baptism. Uh, in this case, we're more like Baptists. Um, so we'd be like Reformed Baptists, I suppose. Um, so let's go over this. Uh, all those who respond to the gospel with repentance and faith are also called uh, by God to be baptized. There's a, a command there, and there's a, an obedience for us to follow through on it. Acts 2, 38, uh, Peter preaches, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is therefore an obedient response of someone who has been saved by God's grace. In baptism, we identify with the Lord who has saved us. Baptism cannot contribute to or bring about salvation. Baptism doesn't save us. Jesus saves us through faith, and we need to understand that. Uh, Acts 8, 12, when they were baptized, when they believed, they were baptized, both men and women. They believed, that's what God had done, and they were baptized in, in uh, response to that faith in Christ Jesus that they have. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward work which has already taken place in, in us and which was done in us by God himself. Therefore, only those who have believed the gospel and repented from their sins should be baptized. And it's for that reason that we do not baptize infants, which would be the practice in um, classically reformed churches. Uh, they have a, a different theological perspective on this uh, than we do. Uh, water baptism is a sign and symbol of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. We see this in Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we may live a new life. So we practice baptism um, in, uh, we practice baptism by full immersion uh, into the water, uh, in addition to being uh, like the likely practice of the New Testament, we see this practice uh, uh, as vividly illustrating the believer's identification with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. So it's symbolic in that way. And that's why we don't sprinkle people with water. Uh, because we feel like we're losing that symbolism. Uh, besides that, it, it seems as though this is the way the church did it, was to, to find a body of water, a pool of water, in our case, uh, a, a, a little tiny pool of water set up in the front of the sanctuary, and we baptize people uh, by submerging them all the way under that water. Baptism is a landmark moment in a believer's life, marking, uh, clearly marking one's identification with Christ, and entrance into Christ's body, which is the church. Uh, it's therefore our wonderful privilege as a church to celebrate these times together. We set aside uh, specific times uh, for our baptisms, and we invite the whole church to, to stay. They usually happen at the end of the service uh, so that we can celebrate together this uh, person coming to faith in Christ, recognizing that they are uh, in Christ Jesus, and, and so they're identifying now publicly that they are Christians, and they're um, also joining themselves in, in a way uh, to the people of God, to his church. So uh, we tend to do this uh, definitely on Easter uh, and then again in October or so. Um, you've seen it. We set up our, our little pool uh, at the front of the church. And uh, then at the end of the church, we hardly take a break at all. We just try to get everybody to stay. Um, and we'll do it at other times. And in fact, we just had a baptism recently, just a, a month or two after Easter, uh, because there was more people, I think it was young people in that case, uh, to be baptized. And so we, we did it again. Um, this is a wonderful time for us to rejoice about the grace of God at work in someone else. Uh, we used to do it at a pool. Uh, you know, somebody in the church had a pool. We'd go out to there to the pool. And those were always fun times too. But you get less of a crowd out there because then you, you, you just lose people uh, when you invite them to go have lunch first and then meet us at somebody's pool. Um, that's how I was baptized years ago in another church uh, in somebody's pool. And it was, it was a nice experience too. So that is our Baptistic um, distinction.
And then we are also uh, continuationists. Um, this is a fun uh, bit to cover and uh, sometimes uh, creates quite a bit of questions from our class members. So we'll see what happens here. Uh, the Christian life was never meant to be lived out in our own strength. Just as the Holy Spirit transforms our heart and salvation, he also empowers believers for Christian living, witness, and service. To say that we're continuationists means we believe in the present-day work of the Holy Spirit in the many ways that the Spirit is described and manifested in Scripture. So what we're talking about is uh, the empowerment of, of, the, of the Holy Spirit, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, actually, we're talking about every bit of the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Now, there's a particular aspect of this that tends to create more questions from some folks uh, because a lot of this is, is uh, understood by uh, many Christians. So first, there's this broad work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to cover what the Holy Spirit does uh, from a high-level perspective. Um, uh, belief in the, continuation, in the continuation of the Spirit's powerful work sometimes narrows to a focus on the spectacular, um, the, the, um, the stuff that we see in the early part of Acts, uh, God doing these miraculous things through, through the, um, the disciples. Uh, however, the Bible portrays the Spirit's work in broad, comprehensive terms as the Christian's source of life and empowerment from the very first to the very last of, of our lives. Uh, here are some uh, of the main ways that we expect the Spirit's work in our midst. Uh, first, regeneration. We already talked about that. God making us alive spiritually. It's the, the Spirit who is at work uh, doing that. Ezekiel uh, 36, um, the prophet says, uh, uh, in God's voice, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the spirit um, changing our hearts from stone to flesh. That's him making us alive. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and Jesus had that wonderful conversation with Nicodemus that you remember Nicodemus comes to him at night, a, a Jewish leader, comes to him secretly, uh, and, and, and Jesus says this baffling thing to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, now this confuses Nicodemus to no end. He wonders how, he can, how he's supposed to crawl back into his mother's womb and get born over again. And... Uh, 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 Jesus goes on and says, do not, marvel, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That, that being born again, that being regenerated and made spiritually alive, it's the Spirit's work. The Spirit is also at work in what we call progressive sanctification. The same Spirit that gives us new life continues to transform us that we might become more and more like the very character of Jesus Christ. Uh, Galatians 5, Paul says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on in verse 22 and 23 to tell us about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The Spirit is the one who's actually bringing righteousness into our lives, helping us to put off sin and put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's a broad work of the Spirit. The, the Spirit is also at work in illumination. Illumination is the Holy Spirit's enabling of Christians generally to understand and to apply the truth of God's Word. Um, uh, John 14, 26, that verse is not in your, in your books, but I'm going to read it to you. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the Spirit's job, is to, to help us understand and see and hear what God has said to us. Um, it's, it's, this is a wonderful, miraculous work that goes on in our lives as believers, that the Spirit would help us to understand the very words of God. Um, I, in fact, I had a, a, a really cool experience with this. I, I was a, a Christian for about a year, 
Uh, and I was, I remember I was studying the, the parables of Jesus and just being perfectly baffled. Uh, I was an accounting major in school, not a literature major, so uh, understanding um, uh, words eloquently put was not my gift. And so uh, I'm just thinking that straightforward talk would be helpful to me here, um, and stories are not, are, not, are not my bag. So in any case, I was having a hard time studying them, and I even asked a friend, uh, a guy farther along in Christ than I, and, and he started to help me, and I was just still rather struggling with this. Um, now, I had a, a very particular experience with the Holy Spirit, um, uh, something more like what we see in the early part, in, in, in Acts, of, of being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. It was really, a um, this, at this particular occasion in my life, it was just a sudden work of God. And, um, and so, uh, I had this experience of being baptized or being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, had, um, uh, you know, stuff happened that just made me know that God's at work here. Um, and then, and then I went in my devotions and started reading these parables of Christ again. And I remember reading one of the parables and thinking, well, that one wasn't so hard to get. I think I basically understand that. But, and then I read the next one and went, well, yeah, that one too. Okay, I can see what Jesus is talking about and what that's symbolic of and what he's actually trying to tell me through these stories. It's not just about a farmer sowing seed. It's about something else. Um, and, and what I was realizing afterwards, uh, and maybe even after I, I started reading material like this uh, to understand the scripture and how God works in my life, is God was illuminating that word to my heart through his Holy Spirit. It, for whatever reason, he graciously did it after this experience that I had with him. Um, and no doubt he was already doing it in my life, and I just didn't experience it uh, uh, so obviously to me. Um, but this was a wonderful thing, and it, God continues to do this for us. Uh, we need him to illuminate the truth of Scripture to our hearts and our minds and to our understanding. So, uh, broadly speaking, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit also includes spiritual gifts. Uh, spiritual gifts are means by which the Holy Spirit empowers and enables us to serve God and his people. Um, this would include supernatural gifts. It would include supernaturally empowered natural gifts. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 uh, Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So prophecy is obviously one of these spiritual gifts, meaning that uh, a believer can at times be given by God a message uh, that's to be spoken to another believer or to a body of believers. First uh, uh, Peter 4, uh, 10 through 11, Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you see, spiritual gifts are an interesting thing. We think of gifts as something that somebody gives us for our benefit. Uh, the birthday gifts that my family gives me are for me. They're not usually for everyone else. That's kind of those deceptive gifts that you give to somebody yeah. that's really for you. You know, <laughs> Here, I gave you two tickets to the Dodgers game uh, so we could go to the Dodgers game together. My wife goes, oh, that sounds like a gift for you, Bill. <laughs> that's not really a gift for me. No, gifts. we give gifts for that person. You receive a gift and you expect it to be for you and for your benefit. In this case, God's giving us gifts for him, ultimately for his glory. He's giving us gifts that will serve others um, and, and, and benefit them, uh, that'll serve unbelievers and help us to bring the gospel to them, um, that will to help people be uh, come into an understanding of God or to understand a part of scripture or to understand what they're supposed to do for their lives or whatever it is, you know? Um, all spiritual gifts from the spectacular to the seemingly mundane they're all supernatural. They're all equally from God, equally empowered by the Spirit, and vital for the edification of the church. And that's the thing about these gifts. It's for the, the building up of the church of God. Um, we are going to come back to that in just a minute. Um, and then also broad work of the Spirit, glorifying Jesus Christ. Uh, really, the most important work of the Spirit is to reveal, to illuminate, and to exalt the work of Jesus Christ himself. John, uh, Paul says, I'm sorry, not Paul, Jesus in John 15, verse 26 says, but when the helper comes, whom I, who I will send, whom I will send in your, oh my, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
That's the main job of the Holy Spirit is to, um, is to shine a bright light on Jesus Christ. Um, by opening blind eyes to see the glory of Christ, by transforming hearts to turn from sin and trust in his uh, work on the cross, by uniting us to Christ in his death and resurrection, the Spirit of God makes fellowship with Christ and with the Father an experienced reality in our lives. And that is one of his greatest works in us. Now, um, second, we're going to call it, that was the broad work of the Spirit. So that was all the things the Spirit does, looked at very broadly and very quickly for that matter. Um, but the Spirit is also at work uh, actively, presently in all of our life. Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit isn't simply a doctrine to be acknowledged, but it's a way of life to be pursued. In short, this doctrine implies a life of dependence upon God. Although we may uh, differ on some details amongst Christians about the Spirit's work, we believe we, we believe we will be able to serve fruitfully together if we share a few central values. And these are things that we, we understand about the work of the Spirit. Um, so this would be pointing more towards what we might call the spectacular gifts or the, the gifts of, uh, of the Holy Spirit that we, that we see in Scripture, which, which all, not all are, are, are actually um, all that spectacular, but they're all spectacular in their usefulness. Um, but anyway, these uh, few central values. A recognition of our need for ongoing empowerment by the Spirit in our lives. We need this. We need the Spirit's help. A conviction that Christians are to seek to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I was, I, I, I had my original, uh, that experience that I told you about of being filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit in a, a kind of classically uh, charismatic or uh, Pentecostal sort of church um, where that, that work is made much of. Um, and and that, that's the work we're talking about here. Um, the, the one thing that we kind of lost in, in, in that church that I was a part of was this need of being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It was often thought that, well, I had that experience with the Holy Spirit uh, back then, and that's what I needed, um, and that's good for now. Just like the gospel was good for even earlier when I first got saved, um, and I don't need that for now anymore. I need the deeper teachings of Scripture. No, that's not true. We need the gospel now. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit now. Um, Acts 1, uh, 4 through 5 uh, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the, the, the greater, to the end of the earth. So um, uh, we need this empowerment to be the witnesses for Christ that God has called us to be. Uh, Ephesians 5, 18, Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And, and and the Greek there is really telling us to be being filled, to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is, um, this is what we're going to look to do then. Uh, also, these um, uh, central values about the Spirit at work in us. Uh, thirdly, a belief in the continuance of the Holy Spirit or the spiritual gifts listed in Scripture and an earnest desire for whatever gifts the Spirit would graciously give to each of us. Um, uh, this uh, brings to mind um, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, which is not listed there. <coughs> Pardon me. Mm. Uh, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So these gifts that I've just listed there, the other ones that we listed in uh, 1 Peter 4, uh, you'll see another list in Romans 12, uh, we understand that these are continuing today. Um, they, they are still available to us in the Spirit, and they're still given by the Spirit and used 
uh, in, in, for the edification of his church. And then the last value that we see uh, in regards to this work of the Spirit, um, we want to have a love for and a pursuit of the active presence of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So we want you to, the members of this church, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, to earnestly desire um, the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's activity in our lives in this way. Now, you know, we do this fully well understanding that this, um, this could be frightening. We don't know how God's going to use us and whether we're going to look foolish in doing this or not. Um, but we're going to trust that God is going to do this, that God is going to keep things in order, that God is going to bring glory to his name, and that this is all going to work out uh, for his good. Um, a practical work uh, to, um, to point you to would be a, bo- a book called Four Views, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today. Um, it's a very good book. It's written in a debate style. So every writer makes his case for how the Holy Spirit's at work today in regards to spiritual gifts especially. <coughs> Pardon me, and the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they have a you know, point counterpoint sort of thing. Uh, they each argue against each other and then they defend themselves once again. Um, and, uh, and it has four perspectives a classically Pentecostal perspective, um, uh, what they call the third wave perspective, which is a little different but still believes in the continuationist view. Um, and then also um, a cessationist view, the view that that these gifts are not available to us anymore, that the Spirit is not doing this work in the church at all, at all any longer. And then also an open but cautious view, uh, one that sees this in Scripture but is a little concerned and cautious in the way they go about um, uh, taking it in or practicing it. So, all right, that was uh, uh, us being continuationists. Uh, then uh, we have next uh, our complementarian uh, view. This is speaking again to the roles of, uh, of men and women. Uh, I, I just referred you to a book, good book. I'm going to immediately refer you to another good book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by uh, Tim and Kathy Keller. Uh, fabulous book on marriage altogether. There's a particular chapter in that book, and it's written by Kathy Keller, on this subject, does a much more thorough treatment of it than we're going to do here, and is one of the most beautiful biblical treatments of complementarianism that, I, uh, that I've seen. Uh, not that I'm incredibly well-read in that area, but it was is very, very good. So you might want to take a look at that. We usually have that book in our bookstore, too, I believe. Complementarian is a theological shorthand for the view that the Bible teaches that God <laughs> created men and women equal in personhood, equal in value, equal in dignity, but different in certain roles and functions in both the home and in the church. This view arises out of a careful reading of scripture, but especially it arises out of Genesis uh, chapters 1 and chapters, uh, chapter 2 especially. Um, so we see here that there's an equality of personhood, value, and dignity. And we want to emphasize this because the, the distinction in the roles is not meant to say that, that men are more valuable than women, that women are more valuable than men. Uh, we're equal in this value. And we see this in Scripture, Genesis 1, uh, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In his image. I mean, if a man is in his, in God's image and a woman is in God's image, there's, there's right there no distinction about their value, about their dignity, um, about their pus- personhood. So we want that to be uh, understood very clearly. Um, and we even see this throughout scripture. Uh, there in Acts 2, Peter's sermon, uh, he's uh, quoting Joel and the prophecy that he gave uh, and Peter says and it shall be in the last days God said God says that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy even upon my bond slaves both men and women I will in those days pour forth my spirit the spirit's going to get poured out on sons and daughters on bond servants who are male and female. There's no distinction about how God participates in our lives in regards to our gender. 
Because of this fundamental equality, there should be no sense of superiority or inferiority of resentment uh, uh, or competition between men and women. Both are deserving of mutual respect and honor. Okay? Now, um, if any of us have had experiences in other churches that had these same views but were were elevating the role of men, uh, we were in an unhealthy uh, situation there, and an, an unbiblical one as well. Uh, we want we want to everybody to understand that, and and, and maybe you would come out of a situation like that. In which case, um, you might want to uh, carry on some conversations with our pastors and 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 help yourselves in understanding what God is really saying here a bit a bit better. First um, Peter. 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, now, this is, uh, this, is, um, this is good to read and to understand in what God is telling us. He's putting a, a huge responsibility on men and on the role, the particular role that God gives men, in this case husbands, uh, with their wives. We're to be uh, help, we're to be showing honor to them, we're to be, be, um, we're to be serving them uh, in a particular way. Um, uh, woman needs man, man needs woman as well. Uh, Genesis 2, God, Eve is given as a, substitu- as a suitable helper for Adam. Um, so the man needed the woman to be a helper to him. Uh, the woman, as a weaker vessel, needs the man to show her honor and to, to serve her uh, as heirs of the grace of life. And if he doesn't do this well, his prayers are going to be hindered. There's consequences here uh, to not doing this. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Kathy Keller is, one of the things she points out, which is so great, um, this idea, I think, I think women could think that uh, being given as a suitable helper to their husband sounds demeaning. They're the, they're the little helper, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, Gilligan to the skipper or something, you know? Uh, the little buddy. Um, um, but that's not the case, and we, and we shouldn't see that the case, because the Holy Spirit is also called the helper. God is called a helper to us. Uh, this is, this is a, a role that's given to women that is like the divine role that is given and that is God's in each of our lives. And so uh, if it's important uh, and, is, and, and of highly esteemed in God, it should highly be esteemed uh, in women as well. Um, so, uh, again, much is made of, uh, of the, the Genesis uh, story. Uh, Adam was made first. Eve, Eve was made out of man and given to him as a helper. Um, the New Testament applies the foundational teaching of Genesis uh, and those first chapters of De- Genesis to the differing roles of men and women in the home and in the church. And, in, and concluding, it concludes that leadership... Um, uh, which must be exercised in light of the truth of our equal value before God, is male both in the home and in the church. Men are to lead. Ephesians 5, 22 through 25, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, I would hazard to guess that, um, that when wives are having a hard time submitting to their husbands, that probably husbands are not loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, see the the role here for the man is is a high one. Obviously, is 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 hard to attain to, but is our is our goal is we're to be loving like Christ sacrificially. Uh, we're to be loving like Christ, uh, uh, leading with servant servant heartedness, uh, leading in a in a, a manner that is meant for uh, the good of our of our wives. Um, so uh, so the men. The men are called to a great deal here, uh, as women are as well. Um, and I think um, possibly 
the, the situations where we found uh, where wives are having a very difficulty in submitting, they have husbands that have not been doing this uh, right, this leading uh, servant-heartedly, this leading lovingly, this leading as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, and then in First Timothy 2, verses 2 through 14, we hear Paul say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Um, and so what we see here is uh, Paul talking about um, men leading in the church. Um, and those roles that he's pointing out uh, to teach and to exercise authority uh, those are roles that are given to elders, to the elder pastors of the church. And so essentially what he's saying is men are called to be elders. They're called to be pastors of the church. And interestingly, he makes his appeal back to creation. He makes his appeal back to uh, Genesis, that Adam was formed first uh, and then Eve, and, um, and that Eve was deceived first and then Adam. Um, and that's important to see uh, because that the, the, our view of uh, Scripture uh, as authoritative uh, is going to help us to understand these difficult things for us to hear from the Word. Uh, but he's going back to the Old Testament. He's going back to the very beginning of, um, of uh, creation and showing us how this is so. Uh, too often, the debate over women and leadership in the church rages over what women can't do. The range of service in the church that is reserved for men is actually quite narrow. There are numerous and vital ways for both women and men to use their gifts in the church. And we want to see that happen here at Sovereign Grace Church. First um, Peter 4, 10 through 14, we're going to read again. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, men and women, uh, whoever serves as one who strengthens by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So everyone is participating in this, men and women. And we want to see, um, we want to see each of you women and men together uh, serving and bringing glory to God in this way. So those are our distinctions that were gospel-centered, reformed doctrine. We have a reformed doctrine of salvation. We are Baptistic. We are continuationists, and we are complementarian. That is the end of our discussion.